All right, I'm ready. Hello and welcome. I'm David Hyde, a politics reporter here in Seattle, Washington. He's political consultant and German television enthusiast Sandeep Kaushik. Uh, guten Tag, Sandeep. <laughs> guten Tag. Wie geht's? Es geht mir gut. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and to Sandeep's left, on my screen at least, but also to Sandeep's left, like in politics, Erica C. Barnett, editor, publisher of Publicola. How's your Friday going so far, Erica? Alles gut. <laughs> yeah. In keeping with our German theme. Yeah. Good. You know, that could be about to change because you're listening to, okay, all together, please. Seattle, Seattle nice. nice. Okay, cool. sure, I think by the end of 2022, maybe. Yeah. Uh, this week on Seattle Nice... Seattle's new city attorney, the person in charge of a number of things, including whether to prosecute misdemeanors. Her name's Ann Davison. She's a Republican, which is practically verboten here in Seattle, as uh, Sandeep might say. So we're going to talk about that. We're also going to get into her plans for Seattle in 2022. So public safety, law and order, big, big questions, issues in blue cities uh, like Seattle that go well beyond Seattle. And given that, let's just start with a question that's predicated on a, an assertion that's central to this podcast, which is, unlike the sun, politics rises in the West and sets in the East. I've got an idea of what that means, but what does it mean? And, and is it a defensible reason for being for this podcast? I think there's a lot of truth to that, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, democratic and particularly progressive politics, right? When I first moved to Seattle in 2002, I moved here from Cleveland. For the first year, I was kind of walking around Seattle and, and thinking like, this is some kind of weird white Disneyland version of a city. It's not like, you know, East Coast cities that are majority minority. I, you know, I grew up in the D.C. suburbs, but D.C. was a, a majority uh, black city. Cleveland, the east side of Cleveland, uh, you know, has a huge minority population, right? And you come to Seattle and it's like, you know, white people with piercings and tattoos, you know, being cool, right? And it is disproportionately white. Uh, cities like Seattle, Portland, San Francisco are essentially cities where the political culture is driven by educated white progressives, which is certainly what mirrors the demographics of Democratic Party elites. And increasingly, the politics of educated white progressives is the politics of the left. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, there's a lot about Seattle that I find incredibly problematic and annoying. And, and one of those things is that, as what Sandeep mentioned, you know, or alluded to, it is not a very diverse city. I think it has a lot of uh, things in common with its neighbor to the immediate north, Vancouver. The great truth about Seattle and one of the things that people who are, have lived here for a long time or are from here I really don't like to acknowledge is we are a city largely of newcomers. And so I think that unlike established cities uh, on the East Coast and, and elsewhere in the country, and particularly as we grow and get more and more people moving here from other places, I think that we actually are open to new ideas and to new ways of doing things and to doing things that might seem radical elsewhere in the country, like, oh, I don't know, getting rid of single family zoning. You know, we're not quite there yet, but we were one of the first cities to talk about safe injection sites. I think there's there's a lot of room for innovation here. And so as, as much as uh, I gripe and we'll probably gripe on uh, future episodes of this podcast about the culture of Seattle and the lack of diversity and all the things that we complain about. It is a new city and it uh, and it often acts that way. 
So, you know, whether it's the $15 an hour minimum wage or pot legalization or even cultural trends like coffee culture, if the premise here is unlike the sun, politics rises in the West, sets in the East, let's talk about this trend that's happening right now. Uh, Ann Davison, first Republican elected to Seattle city government since the 1980s. I'm Ann Davison, and I'm running for Seattle city attorney because our city must reconcile that it is failing to meet the needs of our most vulnerable, as well as the basic functions of protecting public health and safety. So the first question I just want you to address is, how unusual is it for the city of Seattle to elect a Republican? I mean, I think it's incredibly unusual. I mean, as you said, it's literally unusual, but we tend to, in this particular position, we tend to uh, have elected, you know, moderate to left-leaning Democrats. I would say the closest thing we've had to a Republican in the city attorney position is Mark Sidron, who was the city attorney through, I believe, 2000 and uh, one or three. Um, and, you know, and I, and he was within the mainstream, I would say, of the Democratic Party establishment in the country, electing someone who actually declared herself a Republican d- during the Trump administration and ran as a Republican in 2020 for a statewide office um, is incredibly unusual. The people of Seattle have suffered enough from growing crime and dysfunction. We need a new way. What kind of a Republican sort of qualitatively is Ann Davison and whoever wants to start, but maybe Erica, you want to start? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think the truth is we don't know what kind of Republican Ann Davison is because she's never held a political office. She's um, languished in obscurity in a lot of ways. She ran um, for city council in 2019 and lost, ran as a Republican for lieutenant governor in 2020 and lost. But what she has said publicly, you know, are... Um, you know, they're not Trumpian Republican talking points, but, uh, by the, by the measure of the political spectrum in Seattle, they're pretty far to the right. You know, she's talked about warehousing people experiencing homelessness, literally warehousing them, putting them in warehouses in uh, North and South Seattle and outside Seattle. Um, and she has adopted a really law and order kind of approach. And I would say, you know, a Sidron-esque approach to dealing with people who are, you know, committing low-level street crimes um, and who, you know, may or may not also be experiencing homelessness. I don't know Ann Davidson well. I've had a few conversations with her. And I should say here that I was involved in pulling together Seattle for Common Sense, which was an independent expenditure campaign that helped to elect her. Look, I think the left wants to make Ann Davison into some kind of, you know, Trumpist Republican. And, oh, she switched parties in 2020 at a time when Trump was on the ballot. I don't think that's I think Ann Davison is a moderate Republican. You know, she was a kind of conservative leaning Democrat who switched over and is now a moderate Republican. Nor do I think some of the caricatures of her that we're already starting to hear from the left that she's going to be some kind of like, uh, you know, jackbooted law and order uh, city attorney uh, is going to turn out to be accurate. Yeah, well, um, we had an incumbent city attorney, uh, Pete Holmes, who was a Democrat who'd been in for three terms. Um, and I would say decided he didn't need to campaign, which is a problem, um, that you start to see in incumbents when they reach about three turns. Um, he got booted from office, uh, in the primary election, leaving, um, Nicole Thomas Kennedy, who is an abolitionist candidate on the left, and Ann Davison, who is, um, is a declared Republican. And, and, uh, you know, and Sandeep, you, you said that she switched parties parties from Democrat to Republican. I don't know that we know that that is true, um, that this was like a, a declared party switch. It was just a declared party affiliation. But in any case, we had these two, uh, we had these two people on very opposite sides of the political spectrum. A lot of money was spent portraying Nicole Thomas Kennedy, who goes by MTK as um, some sort of, 
you know, radical, um, you know, open all the jail, jailhouse doors, um, abolish all laws kind of uh, candidate, which I don't think was a fair characterization. But in any case, um, I think Ann Davison stepped into that vacuum. And I think that people who voted for her by and large were voting against the caricature of NTK that they had been led to believe uh, would, would happen if she was elected. Well, uh, the incumbent city attorney, Pete Holmes, who got, as Erica says, got booted in the primary, who booted Pete Holmes? It was the left in Seattle. Uh, and, and in particular, The Stranger, which is the uh, alternative weekly here in Seattle, decided to endorse NTK over him. And, you know, they have a significant power, particularly in, in, in primaries in terms of dictating left lane candidates. And guess what? Pete got booted. And, you know, we ended up in this race with Ann Davison, a, a, a Republican, and, and Nicole Thomas Kennedy, who, contrary to Erica, I think those characterizations from her are spot on. She is a radical extremist abolitionist. She started her campaign saying she would, on day one, end the prosecution of nearly all misdemeanors in the city of Seattle. She sort of backpedaled on that in the last few weeks of the campaign and started started talking about it more as this sort of philosophy. But for most of the campaign, she was running on ending prosecutions of crimes like uh, at the misdemeanor level, but crimes like assault and domestic violence. And uh, I mean, I, that's just simply not that's simply not accurate. Um, so of I mean, I, it's I, accurate. I could pull I mean, the you quote. Can, I, you can. Um, you, uh, so my website, Publicola, uh, did a long interview with her, um, and she actually discussed two of those things in great detail. The two, the last two you mentioned, DUIs and domestic violence. And you know, since we're talking about Ann Davison, and since she didn't win, I don't want to belabor, um, you know, Nicole Thomas Kennedy's positions um, uh, too much. But uh, but I don't think that's an accurate characterization that she didn't want to prosecute domestic violence or DUIs. She is in recovery herself, and we had a very interesting conversation about about that and about DUIs. And I would just encourage people, if you're interested, to go back and read that on Publicola. We saw, I think, in the November results, uh, a backlash against the movement left, uh, Seattle's movement left, embracing some really radical and extreme ideas around, uh, you know, uh, how much they wanted to defund the police around abolishing the criminal justice system or how quickly... Uh, they wanted to move towards abolition and and uh, uh, and also around issues related to what I would call radical permissiveness, related not just to criminal activity, but to, to, to some of the stuff related to what happens in homeless encampments and stuff like that. And so I do think there was a backlash. I will say, though, it is not Giuliani time in Seattle. This is a very progressive city, right? The, it, 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 I think it's a, a, a backlash against some stuff that happened in the last two years that felt to a lot of voters like it had gone too far. That said, that does not mean they want some kind of law and order, you know, um, Giuliani style response to uh, these sorts of questions. Seattle has not changed politically. It remains very progressive. And I think that the idea that we were um, in, we're in the middle of, you know, this convulsive backlash against some, uh, you know, rash of progressive and, um, you know, and far left policies would require that any of those policies had ever actually been implemented in Seattle. And none of them were. There was a lot of rhetoric and a lot of talk and a lot of hope, I think, on the abolitionists left about, you know, actually reducing the size of the police force and investing heavily in alternatives to policing in particular. But none of those policies 
policies ever actually got implemented. And so I think what we actually saw in the election, you know, with the possible exception of Ann Davison, who I do think is a really special and specific case, um, what we saw was a return to the status quo. I mean, Bruce Harrell, the new mayor, just announced his uh, his team, and it is by and large made up of longtime City Hall insiders and people who were in the Durkin, Murray, and McGinn administrations. I mean, it's you know, we may have some very progressive ideas that we discuss, and we are a very left-leaning city rhetorically, but policy-wise, it takes forever to get anything done or anything changed. And the fact is, you know, none of these lefty policies ever actually happen. We're just kind well, of back at the status quo. We did go, we did cut the SVD budget in 2020, probably more than any other city I can think, any other big city I can think of, except maybe Austin. I think Austin had a 25% cut to their police budget. But characterizing things as cuts when you're talking about people leaving is a little misleading. People weren't fired, people weren't laid off, and people weren't replaced. I mean, the the city moved a whole bunch of money and a whole bunch of jobs from the police department into a new division that's going to answer 911 calls. You can count that as a cut if you, you know, are making a rhetorical point, but you still have the same people doing the same jobs. They're just the, the the money is just moved over to a different side of the ledger. And then a lot of cops left as they did all over the country. So I think it's misleading to say that, you know, a radical city council or a radical city attorney or whoever came in and cut the, the police budget, because that's just well, not what happened. Seven of nine of them pledged to cut it by 50 percent in 2020. And I that's think, rhetoric. Yeah. Well, I think their rhetoric ran and their ideology ran up against reality at some point. They realized that in order to to realize that commitment did involve firing hundreds of cops, right? And even uh, some of the council members on the left to kind of realize that's politically toxic. If you're outside Seattle and you're like, wait a minute, Seattle has a revolutionary Marxist on the city council. They just, the city just voted not to recall a revolutionary Marxist. She she is, I'm certain, the only Trotskyist on a city council in the United States right now. I think back in the 30s, it was pretty common, but it's not very common right now. So how does how does lefty, 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 lefty Seattle also elect a Republican? Like what, you know, just explain the basics there. What what's the difference? I, I think Erica's right that this race was an anomaly, right? Um, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, if Pete Holmes had made it to the general election against either of the two candidates, he would have won decisively. Uh, but he got booted in the primary. The the institutions, uh, you know, basically the progressive establishment, which the stranger in some ways, you know, has defined over the last decade, decided to go uh, into this kind of radical left extremist direction in terms of I, their, their endorsement. I want to I want to just briefly push back about the idea that the stranger, you know, somehow single handedly controls elections in the city of <laughs> Seattle. Um, stranger is an alternative weekly newspaper that no longer publishes um, a newspaper. And, 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 that um, we, and that we both wrote for, right? That we both wrote for, right, back, you know, uh, almost 20 years ago is when I started. And um I mean, I think that there are a lot of explanations. I mean, sure, people do listen to endorsements to a certain extent, but I think that we can't just just say, oh, the stranger endorsed this candidate and therefore the, the wonderful Pete Holmes didn't win. I mean... When a candidate decides that they uh, they own the office and they don't have to campaign, um, often they will get booted. I mean, the same thing happened with Richard Conlon, um, who was replaced by Shama Sawant. I, I think there, there there are many criticisms we can level at the campaign uh, that Pete ran. I don't disagree. That said, look, I think the stranger really does in primaries in Seattle primaries. The stranger really do, does pick the left lane candidate, and we saw in this last election. 
that the candidates that the Seattle Times endorsed, kind of on the moderate progressive side, and the candidates that's a stranger endorsed on the on the left are the ones that came through the primary, right? And uh, you know, you know, across the board. And and um, I actually think, as I said in the piece I wrote back after the election. I think the the power that the stranger does have in primaries is a problem for the left because they, they their picks are not always you know candidates that are particularly electable. Uh, case in point, NTK in this race, right? Uh, the only reason uh, you know somebody, whether they're a moderate or whatever, but somebody who had self identified as a Republican could win a race in Seattle was they were running against someone who was perceived to be so extreme or unfit for office that people you know a lot of Seattle voters were willing to go with the you know, ostensible are perceived because of, you know, incredibly misleading campaign tactics by in- independent expenditure campaigns like the one you worked on Sunday. No, it, I mean, was, it, was, it, it was totally I, 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 totally I received disagree. maybe maybe a dozen. <laughs> totally, I mean, totally it, disagree. It, I received what felt like maybe it was less, but it, what felt like a dozen mailers that told me <laughs> that, like, you know, NTK is going to let criminals live in your home. I mean, it was it was absurd. We, I mean, and and the, if I if I hadn't sort of decided who I was going to vote for in that race already, I think, you know, it might have driven me into the arms of NTK because it was such an obviously, you know, and blatantly false and misleading ad campaign. But I, but it obviously we, we was influential. We literally used her own quotes in all of our mail. And I'm Everything sure you've never you heard said. of taking people out of context. I'm sure that's not oh something that, that anyone has ever done while campaigning What's the context of my rabid hatred for police or eat well, COVID shit and quit your jobs or, you know. That, yeah, I mean, the context was was the Black Lives Matter protests and the George Floyd murder and right. the fact that, you know, protests were going on day after day, week after week on the streets of Capitol Hill in Seattle uh, in the, the sure. summer before this previous summer, which which, you know, was a which was a very heated time and a lot of people were saying a lot of shit. Right. And, and I think and I think voters got that and they still thought that was out of line. You know? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I, you said you said no context is required, well, but I do think that the context actually is I, I I think the context was there and people still made that decision, right? I mean, I don't think the context was lost on on voters. I think they just thought some of that stuff was just uh, that she tweeted was just out of bounds and disqualifying. All right, and there's already been some significant news in the last couple of weeks before Ann Davidson's even taken office, uh, some conflict with the Seattle City Council over some transparency issues and sort of how she's going to run her office. But the other news that she's appointed two new people to the city attorney's office, one, Natalie Walton Anderson as her new criminal chief, as well as Scott Lindsay as deputy city attorney, two very different sorts of appointments. What is she signaling and and what does it really say about the future of how the, the politics surrounding public safety are shaping up for Ann Davison and the future of Seattle? A couple of days ago, the incoming city attorney announced uh, two major appointments to her office, Scott Lindsay being one of them, uh, Scott, who I worked with on the uh, independent expenditure campaign in the race, and um, a new head of the criminal division who happened to be the point person in the King County prosecutor's office on diversion. The, the You know, she was the person who took criminal cases and diverted them into, uh, you know, alternatives to the uh, traditional punitive criminal justice system. And so, uh, you know, has a national reputation as a as a uh, prosecutor who taught other prosecutors how you make those decisions, right? How you do that triage and make those decisions about how how do we find ways to take people out of the punitive criminal justice system and divert them to 
other alternatives less focused on punishment and maybe more 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 helpful to those people in terms of getting them back onto a better track in their lives right and so i think she's that i think that pick was surprising to a lot of people and and all the feedback i'm hearing from folks at places like the ACLU and uh and at the city council uh, has been very positive so the other person, as Sandeep mentioned, that I think he kind of glossed over is Scott Lindsay, um, who was, you know, not only worked on getting Ann Davison elected, but he, he used to be the um, the public safety advisor to former uh, Mayor Ed Murray. And in that role, he uh, authored a report that sort of became the basis of the Seattle is dying narrative in Seattle, suggesting that, you know, there were a certain number of so-called prolific offenders who were causing all kinds of crime and disorder downtown. And that, you know, if the city addressed those specific people by cracking down on them, by arresting them, by, you know, through punitive methods, then that would solve the problem of, quote, unquote, disorder downtown. He was the founder of the navigation team, which was a very controversial team of police officers um, helped out by some social service workers um, who would go out and remove encampments. So, you know, he has he has a, a well-deserved and well-documented reputation as a kind of more punishment uh, leads to less crime, uh, law and order, broken windows theory kind of guy. And he is the deputy city attorney. He's right there under Ann Davison on that org chart. And, you know, and I think that, that I think that it is concerning that, um, you know, if you are the kind of person who supports diversion and who supports the kind of programs that uh, Natalie Walton Anderson, the criminal chief, um, has supported at the King County Prosecutor's Office, it's concerning that this is the person that is going to be second in command at the office. So I've known Scott Lindsay for years. Uh, he, he's a friend. As I said, we worked on that campaign together. And again, I think he's somebody who's being kind of caricatured by by the left. I think he's actually... Uh, he's more right than wrong about the prolific offenders report, which, you know, that there are a small number of people who commit a disproportionate amount of the crime on streets, particularly downtown, uh, and cause a disproportionate amount of impact on corroding the, the, the social fabric and creating a kind of disorder on the streets. Uh, that said, I know Scott well. Scott is not an opponent of diversion. Scott believes in harm reduction. You know, Scott is not some kind of um, lock him up and throw away the key kind of guy. Now, is there going to be some recalibration that goes on in the city attorney's office under Ann Davison with Scott Lindsay and with the new head of the criminal division in terms of, of how to find, you know, the right balance between prosecution and diversion and alternatives and all that? Absolutely there is. But I think there are some criticisms to be leveled uh I think if you talk to some of the criminal justice reformers on the left about the current practices that have been in place at the city attorney's office, they have a lot of criticisms too that 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 there wasn't the right always the right calibration in terms of how at the individual case level we were figuring out um you know how to how to find that balance and how to do that right. So I think there will be some recalibration that goes on here. We'll see how it turns out. I, I think you are slightly mischaracterizing his positions as, as being sort of a sort of a, a, a slightly to the right, you know, uh, version of Pete Holmes. And I, I don't think that's no. accurate. But but I but I want to bring up another issue that, you know, the the sort of discussion that we're having around the right balance of punitive measures versus sort of um 
you know, diversion and programs that actually help people, you know, I would say, um, get out of the patterns that, that land them in the criminal justice system, like addiction. Um, we're seeing that all up and down the West Coast. And I, I think in a lot of ways, San Francisco is, you know, often uh, we see stuff happen there before it happens here. And um, the homelessness crisis is a great example, um, uh, a very telling example. San Francisco has a larger homeless population than us, but we're catching up. I mean, there's new numbers that came out this week that reveal what, you know, a lot of people already knew, which is that, you know, we have tens of thousands of people living on our streets. With that as context, London Breed, the mayor of San Francisco, announced um, this week that she is declaring a state of emergency in the Tenderloin, uh, which is a neighborhood in San Francisco uh, where a lot of people are probably aware. I mean, that's there's a huge concentration of people experiencing homelessness, people who are addicted and, you know, and, and the low level um, and sometimes high level crime that comes along with it. And, mm-hmm. you know, she um, had some really choice words this week that, you know, I think we're probably not likely to see coming out of uh, Mayor of Seattle because, you know, it is Seattle nice up here. But, you know, she said she's tired of the bullshit and um, and she's going to crack down on the bullshit. And she used uh, the word bullshit and she used the word crack down. And, and the and people it, destroying our city, right? Or something like that. She's, yeah, I, it speaks to the fact that even in progressive cities, it is very tempting to try to sort of regress to the uh, the drug war approach and the lock em up approach. Um, and and I think when when Sandeep says Scott Lindsay isn't Giuliani, you know uh, the the question that that raises in my mind is you know but is he London breed? You know, and are we going to see a situation in Seattle soon where maybe it isn't to lock people up over broken windows, but maybe it is lock people up because you saw them, you know, dealing drugs or you saw them fencing stolen goods. And instead of sort of trying to get to, well, why is that happening? We just, you know, fill up the jail again. And that's kind of what I'm afraid of. All right, let's see if we can uh, wrap it up here by fulfilling the promise that this podcast started out with, our existential kind of reason for being, unlike the sun, politics rises in the West, it sets in the East. What does the success of this kind of law and order politics in super duper blue Seattle mean for other blue cities and progressive politics generally across the United States? There's a pervasive sense in including in progressive cities like San Francisco and Seattle, that the left has gone too far on some of this, you know, again, what I call kind of radical permissiveness stuff, right? Shootings are rising, you know, homicides are up, you know, uh, visible street disorder is a real thing in the city of Seattle. I think, I don't think it's illegitimate for someone to feel like, God, I don't want to get mugged when I walk down the street in my neighborhood, right? I do think it's a lesson for the left here that you got to be able to respond to those concerns that people have but without just telling them they're like heartless reactionaries, you know, it, because that's not going to win them over, obviously. I'm a harm reduction guy, right? I believe we should open a safe consumption site in the city of Seattle, and, and it, it, it saddens me we haven't done that sooner. I believe we shouldn't be criminalizing drug use, whether it's meth or fentanyl or, or, or heroin. At the same time, I don't think we should be decriminalizing criminal behaviors like repeated theft and shoplifting. Should we try to help those people and try to find alternatives and get them into a better place? Absolutely. But if it doesn't work, then no, we shouldn't be like, well, we can't do anything and you get to continue to 
engage in these antisocial and destructive and criminal behaviors until you feel like, uh, you, you know, you want to actually make a change, right? I don't think that's, I don't think that's either right as a policy, nor, and I especially don't think it's politically sustainable, including in places like, like Seattle. I, and I do think that was part of what played into the election we just had here, right? And the election of Eric Adams in New York, or, you know, the, the, the defeat of the measure in Minneapolis to get rid of the police department, or the re-election of the mayor there, or even in 2020, the, the re-election of the mayor of Portland. I would I would sort of focus on a different aspect of what we uh, what we discussed. And that's, you know, the problems that we see in San Francisco, the problems we see in, in Vancouver and the problems that we see in Seattle often um, reverberate later in the rest of the country. Um, that isn't always true. But I think particularly with homelessness, uh, with trends in drug use, you know, with the incredible uptick in uh, methamphetamine use and addiction, which I think is primarily what is driving a lot of the disorder type stuff that that Sandeep is saying that, you know, are making people feel like they can't, I don't know, walk down the street in Finney Ridge um, and, and not get mugged, which... I did not say Finney Ridge. <laughs> uh, but, but in any case, you know, I mean, we have a worse affordability crisis and a, and a growing affordability crisis that far outpaces the affordability crisis that's happening in a lot of the country. But the affordability crisis is happening everywhere. I mean, rents are becoming affordable, you know, not just in New York, but in cities all across the country. And um, and I think Seattle, you know, with, with our just absolutely, you know, ridiculous cost of living here and ridiculous inequality is... Um, is a real barometer for the rest of the country. And I think that the way that we address those problems, you know, whether it's by by saying that um, meth users are bad people and they should be locked up or by saying, you know, we need to build uh, 40,000 new housing units um, uh, is really going to uh, to show what works and what doesn't to the rest of the country as they start to deal with the same problems more and more. All right, Erica gets the last word, and you heard it, Boston, New York, Chicago, Minneapolis, wherever you are, Seattle's coming for you. She's Erica C. Barnett with Publicola. He's political consultant Sandeep Kaushik. I'm political reporter David Hyde, and thanks so much for listening to Seattle Nice. Seattle Nice.